0: Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Education is our subject for today's program. We're talking about K-12. through This is the first of a, a proposed three-part uh, series of programs in the coming weeks on K-12 education. Our jumping off point today is a proposal, uh, possibly uh, purposely provocative, from uh, Senator Aaron Osmond uh, to end... Compulsory Education to uh, Delete the Law, which uh, uh, provides for uh, penalties for parents who do not uh, make their children go to school. That's got some uh, discussion going. We'll talk a bit about that and then uh, general uh, what's going well and uh, perhaps what needs improvement in in K-12 right now. We have with us uh, Lily Eskelson-Garcia, who is vice president of the National Education Association. Uh, She is a sixth-grade teacher from Utah and uh, began her career in education, interestingly, as a school lunch lady, became a kindergarten aide, and uh, then was encouraged by a teacher to go to college. She did that, became uh, uh, got her bachelor's at University of Utah, later on a uh, master's. She became Utah Teacher of the Year after teaching nine years, and uh, went on to become uh, president of the uh, Utah Education Association, ran for Congress in there and uh, has uh, served as president of Utah State Retirement System, president of Children at Risk Foundation, and currently, as I mentioned, is uh, vice president of Natural Educa- National Education Association. Lily I'm Eskison-Garcia. exhausted
1: just listening to you you
0: you've, you've done a lot. So dr-
1: I have been a busy girl.
0: <laughs> We're glad you have time to spend with us. Let me get your general reaction uh, to this proposal. Let me read you what uh, Senator Osmond said on uh, on the Senate side, I think the blog, Uh, he said, in a country founded on the principles of personal freedom and unalienable rights, no parent should be forced by the government to send their child to school under threat of fines and jail time. He goes on to say that uh, the way the public school system is now, it forces teachers to become, quote, surrogate parents, expected to do everything from behavioral counseling to provide adequate nutrition to teaching sex education. Some parents act as if the responsibility to educate and even care for their child is primarily the responsibility of the public school system so the first part of that in in general um and compulsory education good idea or bad idea
1: bad idea oh bad idea and you know senator osmond he's been um someone that i i want to give credit to i want to say that um when he uh wants to um uh Make some kind of, of effort in schools. He really has gone the extra mile to reach out and ask teachers, uh, ask our uh, our Utah Education Association folks um, what they think. Um, but no one is going to be um, looking at something like this and saying, "Now this will really help children." And if I think if he if he um, uh, did more than you know uh, just kind of thinking about it all on his own, uh, parents aren't asking us to do this. Parents aren't saying, you know, it will really help me get my kid more interested in making something of their lives. How about if you give them permission to just walk out of school? Parents aren't begging for this. Teachers know it's the wrong thing to do. And what we find out is when we go out there and we look across the country um, and we see where uh, schools have or, or um, communities and states uh, have very lax laws about, you know, kids going to school and how how young you can be to drop out and not have anybody follow up on it. Um, kids look at that age like if it's 16 or 15. They go, oh, that's the age I don't have to go to school anymore. Um, that's the wrong mental model to put in front of a kid. Uh we know more than ever that um, a child who does not graduate from high school is bound to be living in poverty the rest of her or his life. And we know that kids that graduate make more money, we know if they graduate and actually go to a trade school, go to a community college, oh, wonderful, go to a, a university, that their, um, their family stability, their happiness, the kinds of choices they'll have in their careers are that much greater. Why in the world would anyone believe that saying to a, a child a child of say 12 or 13 or 14 years old, that they should be able to make this kind of um, make this kind of decision that will impact them for the rest of their lives.
0: Now, of course, there are some you know most parents are engaged, want their kid to go to school. Some parents though, um, I, I think uh, do view this as you know I can just offload my kid on the state put him, put him, him or her in school and, uh, and uh, transfer a lot of these responsibilities over to teachers. And you get, you know, you get teachers complaining about uh, an uh, increasing load. And some of that should be, some people say, parental responsibility.
1: Well, of course, there are teachers' responsibilities and parent responsibilities. I'm a really, really good teacher. I'm a lousy substitute parent. Um, but I will tell you this. Let's, let's take, take your premise that there are some parents and, um, of course there are, um, there are going to be parents who don't take their, their work seriously. I thank goodness that there aren't many of them, but those that, uh, that may do what you just suggested saying, you know, Hey, when, When the kid's in school, I don't want to have anything to do with them. Don't let me know if they're a behavior problem. I don't help them do homework. That's your job. Let's say that you have a parent like that. Oh, my goodness, how much more does that kid need a good school? Because they're not getting the support at home to say, so if a parent is going to do that, we'll punish that parent by letting their kid drop out of school, and no one will care. No one will follow up on it. As far as I look at this, to um, to not help your child in education if you if you simply said it's too much trouble i think i'll just let them you know i'll i'll, I'll let my kid uh, get some jobs flipping hamburgers and help out with the rent. That, that helps my family more than me helping my kid go to school. Most states would consider that child abuse. <laughs> you know, most, most states would be following up saying, um, you can't do that. So if it is a parent that is not doing his or her job, um, certainly it's, it's something that, uh, that we need to, to, to look at and say, this child, needs us even more it's hard it it is um, a problem at school but for us to say um, it's up to the parent and if it's hard we just don't do it um, we happen to know, and, and uh, a lot of us who had troubled kids uh, ourselves, I'm a, I'm a mom and I was the teacher of the year. I was the mom of the year because I was just as lost as anybody else with how to motivate my kids and get them to see uh, their own long-term best interests, especially when they were teenagers. But, you know, I had teachers. I had um, the school that my kids went to, and I'd go and I'd talk to those teachers. What am I going to do? And we were a team, and we worked together. And it wasn't that my kids were perfect. Far, far from it. But um, that school was there to be an asset to my family. And you know what? Today, uh, my my son has a good job, and he's a good taxpayer, and thank goodness someone didn't give up on him. Mm.
0: Uh, moving away slightly from this idea of uh, ending compulsory education, Senator Osmond's idea, by the way, it's probably not going to go anywhere. It doesn't, uh, I think the uh, recent poll... Um, of legislators showed seventy percent of Republicans were opposed to this idea. So it means it's probably not going to go anywhere in Utah. Um, interesting question. Of uh, Senator Osmond said he's trying to shine a light on this. One of his purposes is he wants to uh, to make it so that uh, schools emphasize achievement over attendance.
1: Well. Of course. Who's not going to be um you know, in, in uh in favor of that, but his his solution doesn't do that. His solution uh because the answer is not, you know, we somehow tie these kids to their chairs until they're 18 years old, for goodness sakes. You have to have a meaningful education program for these kids. You've got, for all kids, for all kids. And that's the, I think that's the word, all, that, um, that I hear my teachers, my members of the National Education Association, uh, the Utah Education Association being our Utah affiliate, um, they're saying, you know what? This, this system, uh, especially in a middle class suburb, um, it's, it's working just fine for these kids who have involved parents and who, whose parents have decent, job so that they're not hungry and they can go to the doctor when they're sick but oh my goodness there are these kids out there that come to school with so many needs um and 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 disabilities and and mental issues and you name it and we i taught at the homeless shelter and the christmas box house this wonderful wonderful um christmas box house in in west valley city and uh And I dealt with kids that didn't, have parents? A lot of their parents had meth labs running in the kitchen, and and were in jail, and 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 were in drug rehab. This was like the the most dysfunctional families you could even imagine. Their children were beautiful, and their children deserved as much as anyone's children deserves. And so, what we want, what we want, is a system that can personalize the services, the wraparound services that these kids. So desperately need so often. And sometimes it's a gifted and talented child that that is going to excel in music and it's and sports and is a technological wizard um, with all of the advantages that that a child from a a family with a decent income and, and concerned parents could hope for. And other times it's children who are just They they're just looking for someone to show them the way. Um, So the senator's right that our kids are coming to school with more needs than they've ever had before, and what we're finding out now. Parents are on our side, business community uh, leaders are on our side when we say you've really done the wrong thing by focusing on things like test scores, standardized everything, teachers reading scripts instead of teaching kids to learn to love learning and so we're doing wonderfully a hundred and eighty degree turnaround from that that kind of corporate factory school reform that people thought uh, was gonna be like our salvation. And and we're saying if you want to engage these kids, especially these at-risk kids who are thinking there's nothing in school that they want, what we are talking about is really turning those schools into places that kids want to be, that parents are excited to have them there. And we're seeing school district after school district, uh, building after building, say, you know what, we're not going to let that testing um, uh, tail wag the dog anymore. We are here to care about the whole child and to make learning something that's fun and interesting and leads to something that will be meaningful in their lives. That's how you keep kids in school. You don't just lock the door on them. You don't say, hey, you're a lot of trouble, so go away. A kid that is turned away from a school is bound to be a burden on society in a thousand different really bad ways. And we'll be building prisons if we don't build our schools correctly.
0: It seems, though, there's a still appetite among conservative circles for testing. They say there, there has to be accountability. Um, you're, you're saying we should go away from that? Should we repeal no child left behind? What, uh, what are you advocating?
1: Oh, no child left behind. Uh, we got to leave that behind. That, 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 there is, I can't find a person, I can't even find a, a politician that will stand up and say, hey, that was a good idea. Let's label kids by one standardized test score we give them once a year. Let's label their teachers and their schools and their communities by that. What? And, and by the way, teachers invented tests. We're, we make report cards out um, all the time. We've never been afraid of assessing and measuring our students' progress. But the kind of things that they've been talking about are commercial standardized tests that, you know, you can... you. There's a big industry out there that sells a lot of expensive testing material and prep material and training material, and the only thing they do is teach kids to be better test guessers, and kids are totally turned off by that. They see it for what it is. Teachers are demoralized because they see that um, they're not being able to uh, show their kids um, how to be creative, how to be thoughtful, how to, how to think and not be gullible, You know, to ask probing questions. I mean, you're you're um, a radio station that is built around people who are not afraid to think and who want to hear both sides of an issue. I hope you have someone on your program that has a different point of view than I have. I would love to debate that. That's a wonderful, wonderful way to learn. I want kids who who can actually listen to two people on different sides of an issue and say, you know what, this person showed me evidence about something and this person was just, you know, using a lot of fancy words. I want all of that. You get none of it on a commercial standardized test. So one of the things that we have been looking for is a better way to measure our students' success Because whenever anyone else talks about it, they'll say, you're afraid of measuring success. And all they have is this this commercial standardized test, which doesn't do what most people think it does. It has a number. And so it's very um, simple. And we love simple answers. Uh, Those kids are very complicated human beings, as any human being is. So, yes, uh, teachers, uh, professionals are going to reject something that says, you give these kids some commercial standardized tests, and that's all we need to know about them. There's a whole lot more we need to know.
0: How how then best to measure students' progress, which, after all, is uh, that's, that's a measure of how well teachers are doing.
1: Do you know, there are schools out there right now, um, and I've been... Um, giving speeches all over the country on how it's very easy for someone like me to say, here's what's wrong with commercial standardized tests. Here's what's wrong with, you know, you just um, um, give teachers raises based on whether or not their kids scores went up or down. But none of that moves us in the right direction, just to be able to say the obvious and why something's a bad idea. And I've been challenging my my members of the association. We have over 3 million really hardworking educators that belong to the NEA in every single state, in nearly every single community. And so I've said, we have to do something better, and maybe we have to do it without passing a law. Maybe we have to do it without anyone's permission. Some of the best ideas I ever got as a teacher, I didn't need anyone's permission to do it. It was just a great idea because the kids were going to get all excited. Uh, out, um, putting on a blood drive and writing press releases and doing an advertising campaign to get their parents to roll up their sleeves. And I could do reading and writing and math and everything based on something that was really exciting for the kids. So I've challenged my own members, what are your ideas? What can you do without anyone's permission? And especially, I want you to tell me how we'll measure student success because all anyone else comes up with is a standardized test score. There are some amazing things going on out there. And there are uh, teachers in schools all over this country who are saying, we came up, we got to give the test, and we'll give the test, but we're not going to spend one more second on that test than we have to. We're not going to prep for it. We're not going to spend money on it. We're not going to spend time on, um, on getting ready for it. We will give the test, and we will spend all of our time actually teaching And they said, but we're going to measure things like uh, surveying the parents. Are your kids doing their homework? Um, Are they talking about school? Uh, We're going to do things like um, measuring uh, kids turning their homework in. We're going to measure how they're doing on weekly tests, on monthly tests, on things that tell us whether or not they got it or whether or not we have to reteach something. Um, We're collaborating like crazy. We've got math teachers working with the art teachers on things like geometry lessons. Uh, They can't wait to come and tell me the kinds of things that they are measuring. And they said, we can tell within a day or two of a lesson who didn't get it and what we have to reteach. It is not a simple, single number. It doesn't come out that way. If I were to ask you to judge yourself in your profession um, as a radio show host. And I was to say, just give me one single number on your employee evaluation. You can't do that in a fair way. You can't do that in a meaningful way. So what we're doing is we're asking our own uh, teachers and the support staff in those buildings, um, come up with a way that you could sit down with a parent and you could really show them individually and personally how their child is progressing. And for they're going to do the standardized test. They'll do the standardized test. But don't let that get in your way of actually teaching. Hmm.
0: Just have a, a few minutes left with uh, Lily Elskison garcia She is vice president of the National Education Association. I want to close by uh, asking, uh, maybe looking out there, there I'm sure you've you worked with teachers in schools where things are obviously working well. Maybe give me one or two or three examples of some best practices.
1: I was able to visit a remarkable junior high, uh, West uh, Westside Junior High in Waterbury, Connecticut, Uh, where their local president of their association said, Lily, you asked us where we could really make a difference. You have to come out and see what these folks are doing. And I walked in. Four years ago, this school was failing on every level you could think of, and not just test scores. Fights, absentees, every teacher would put in for a transfer. Nobody wanted to work there. Um, If you worked there, it had a reputation that you couldn't get a job anywhere else. It was awful. And so I walk into this school not knowing what to expect, and they had the faculty, the principal, some parents, some kids, the school secretary, the the custodian. I mean, everybody who was part of that school community was sitting in a room dying to brag about what had happened. And I said, okay, so where's the secret sauce? How do I pass this around? They said, you know, we, we had really given up on ourselves, and their local university, the University of Connecticut, said, we're doing some studies here. We don't have a lot of money to give you. We don't have new computers to give you. We don't, but, but if you will give us some after-school time to sit down, we are going to measure some things, how parents feel about you, how students feel about school, how you feel about each other, and absentees and homework being turned in. We're going to give you a lot of data and then we're going to ask you what you intend to do with it. So these, these folks sat and they said, God, the parents hate us. <laughs> the, 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 the kids hate us. They think we don't care about them and we love them. And they had to ask themselves some hard questions. Why do the parents think that, that we don't appreciate their kids? Why don't we like working with each other? Then they asked them a question. What would this school look like if you were proud to work here? And these teachers and the principal, they said, we started dreaming about kids wouldn't be fighting. They'd be doing their homework. They'd be talking about college. There'd be standing room only for parent events. And then they said, how are we going to make that happen? And they said, we're going to make parent events fun. There's going to be music and food and dancing. And we're going to give the kids a real sense of their own self-worth so that they don't fight with each other. We're going to work with each other in a real collaborative way. We're going to know what's going on and we're going to measure things that matter. They got all kinds of support from their principal who went to bat at the school uh, uh, district and said they hate the reading program. They want to read great books. They want kids to love literature. They want this for the science lab. They want that for the PE uh, program. And um, without a lot of money, this school started to plan what it would look like if they were proud to work there. I talked to one of the parents who had had several kids come through that school. And I said, what was it like four years ago? And she rolled her eyes and said, "Ah, oh, you couldn't get me to walk through this door. I said, what is it like now? And she pointed to the wall and she said, I own these bricks. This is my school. That's what I want for every single school in this country. Whether you're in a poor community or the richest community, you want to own those bricks. You want to love your school. You, the, the teachers there want to love working there. It can happen. And these folks kind of hit bottom. Before it happened, we're going to go out there, the National Education Association, and we are going to share these ideas with our members, some of them who are so depressed, they don't want to teach anymore. They don't feel like they're being allowed to teach anymore. So for our back to school, we are telling people, be rebels. And it doesn't mean with a picket sign. It means be a rebel. And do something without anyone's permission, and it's all going to be built around something better for that whole blessed child. Mm-hmm.
0: Finally, what—maybe um, I should have reversed this. I don't want to end on a down note, but uh, I'm, I'm wondering maybe the top three problems that you're, that you're concerned about, seeking fixes to in K-12 through education.
1: Oh, I, I think right now the insanity of, of the over-testing and pretending that these tests measure things that they don't measure and you're changing all kinds of things because you have bad information on a bad test that was never designed to do the things that you're trying to do with it. That's number one. We've got to get rid of that. The second thing is we've got to get rid of this belief that somehow there's a magic pill and it's all about standardization, that if you can hand um, a, a, a script to a teacher and just have this teacher read a script about how to love math or how to love reading, um, there is no script. You have to have these incredibly dedicated, talented, passionate educators who want to be there, who are well-trained and well-prepared to design something very personal for each and every child. That is huge. And I think the third thing is we have to restructure our schools so that they aren't what they were when I taught for 20 years. We were all in our little boxes and we closed the door. I didn't know what Miss Veach was doing across the hall, but it sounded like her class was having a ball doing the Shakespeare play. We have to open up those those schools so that teachers, principals, the support staff are collaborating instead of just this isolated um, Um, lonely world of if if a miracle happens in my class, no one knows. And if something horrible happens, I don't have anybody to turn to for help. We have to turn education into a collaborative um, um, uh, profession. And it hasn't been that. Uh, Where it is collaborative, you see the difference.
0: We've been talking with Lily Eskelson-Garcia, Vice President of the National Education Association, former 6th grade teacher in Utah, former President of the Utah Education Association, former Utah Teacher of the Year. Thank you so much.
1: Thank you. I appreciate it.
0: Coming up, uh, following a break, we're going to continue this discussion with Ray Reutzel. He's a distinguished professor in the usu Eccles jones College of Education and Human Services. He, uh, he prepares teachers uh, to go out there. We're going to be talking about this idea of uh, disengagement of a growing number of parents who view school as just a, a glorified uh, day-long daycare. And uh, Senator uh, Aaron Osmond has uh, recently proposed that we end compulsory education in Utah to try to address that problem. We're asking you, uh, what uh, are what is working well in your child's school? What is not working well that you would like to fix? Uh, what about this idea of disengagement of parents? What's the proper role of public schools, and what's the proper role of, uh, of teachers? And uh, you think that should be shifted? The number is one eight hundred eight two six one four nine five one eight hundred eight two six one four nine five, or you can reach us by email at Access at gmail dot More with Ray Roysel following this break. Before summer ends, now's a good time to donate the vehicle you no longer need to Utah Public Radio. Donating is easy by calling 877-877-7501 or donating securely online at upr.org. Trade your car, truck, motorcycle, or RV for the quality programming that UPR provides. You may even qualify for a tax deduction. Call
2: 877-877-7501 or donate securely online at upr.org programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and the Utah Shakespeare Festival, presenting Shakespeare's The Tempest, with seven other productions through October 2013 in Cedar City, www.bar.org.
0: You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams, and uh, we heard in the first half of the program from Lily Eskelson-Garcia, Vice President of the National Education Association. Now we bring in Ray Reutzel, who's a distinguished professor and director of Early Childhood uh, uh, Center at the USU Emma Eccles-Jones College of Education and Human Services. Our jumping off point for this discussion is State Senator Aaron Osmond's recent proposal to end compulsory education in Utah. His concern is that uh, a growing number of parents are disengaging their child's education, even the child's care. It's an opportunity to drop kids off and have teachers take care of everything from, in Senator Osmond's words, uh, providing adequate nutrition, teaching sex education, behavioral counseling, an increased load on the schools. And so we're asking you, what's working well in your child's school? What isn't working well? What fixes would you like to see? And what, where do you stand on this uh, division between the role of schools, teachers, and the role of parents? The number is 1-800-826-1495, one 826 1495 or the email is upraxis at gmail.com, upraxis at gmail.com. Professor Reutzel, welcome to the program. Thank you.
2: It's nice to be here.
0: So uh, let's get your reaction to Senator Osmond's proposal. This it may be purposely provocative,
2: I suspect that it is. Uh, knowing Senator Osmond, <clears throat> he's been a great, uh, a great uh, protector and defender of a lot of good things in education over the years, and so I, I certainly want to uh, say that uh, he's probably being provocative in this in this comment. Uh, at the root of this, I suspect, is a concern that schools have probably overreached what uh, schools were originally intended to do, and. Uh, I think part of that has occurred as a result of our society evolving over time uh, to a very different society than we had when schools were originally conceived. Uh, we still have, for example, an agrarian school calendar, nine months a year. We're one of the few nations in the world that still follow a nine-month school calendar. Um, so I think that's a, that's 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 one of the structural issues in education today that that I think is uh, is a big problem for us. As I've studied the research on uh, summer loss in educational achievement, particularly in the areas of literacy and mathematics, uh, this is very troubling when we uh, give our students three months off in the summer every year and they lose the three months and more very often. And then we spend the first part of the next year in classrooms picking that back up and so there's never really an opportunity for children who are even further behind than the than the average, if there is an average child, uh, to bring those children up to what we would consider to be the the, the standard for that grade level. So um, <clears throat> our society's changed in some other ways that uh, uh, we've seen. In, uh, the Brookings Institute has uh, recently released some information about the fact that one of the real uh, detrimental effects that has occurred in our society for whatever the reasons are in the last 50 years is the disintegration of the family. And uh, and we see, we see that particularly uh, impacting families of children in poverty. Uh, we have a lot of single-parent families, mainly mothers, who live in poverty and have for some now many generations. And this is very, very hard on children. All of the indicators indicate that uh, children who are raised in poverty are going to start school less prepared. Um, they're going to have a school experience that is usually less successful than other children, and that they're likely to repeat the cycle with, of their parents' poverty by joining the ranks of the impoverished themselves. And uh, so, we've got we've we've got a we've got some really serious issues that I think that Senator Osmond's. <laughs> almost, I hope not, but I think maybe is tongue-in-cheeking here, saying, you know, schools have uh, changed to the point where they are becoming sort of the the Walmart for parents, where it's a one-stop shop. You can leave them there for breakfast, and they'll be taught everything from soup to nuts. And I think that is a concern. But underlying that issue is the bigger issue, and that is that schools uh, tend to come up with good ideas, and then they they standardize them themselves. You know, while we're, we're arguing as educators against standardization of everything, we come up with a good idea like uh, uh, we ought to do this for children, then everybody has to do it. Hmm. And so I, I, I want to be very careful in what I'm saying here is there, there are parents who are disengaging from education. They are pulling away, and, and there's lots of reasons for that. Uh, can you imagine being uh, a single mother in poverty who had a very negative school experience and being asked to go back into a school, uh, a place where you have some very bad memories, and engage with your child's teacher? Um, you feel very much at, at at risk in that environment. And so there are parents who, as poverty seeps out into our society more and more, um, and there's no doubt about it, I'm serving on the state's Senate's intergenerational poverty Advisory Committee uh, for the next four years, and we're working on issues related to how we can end poverty in the state of Utah. That's a grand and glorious task, by the way, and it would be wonderful we can, if we can do it, and I think we can make a dent in it. But I do believe that uh, as we look at this issue of of uh, parental engagement, uh, poverty is increasing, mm-hmm. and so you can't help but And teachers can't help but sense and feel that there are more and more parents who are disengaging from schools and from being involved with schools for whatever the reasons. But poverty alone has increased 5% in Utah in the last several years. And so you start to get that sense that parents are moving away. On the other hand, there are many very good parents who are very much involved with their children. And so how do schools cope with that range of of uh, parents who are either really engaged with their children's education and are really interested in what's going on in the classroom and who really follow through at home with them on their homework, and parents who really don't even know, in some cases, how to read well enough to read to their first grader who's learning to read. This is,
0: I imagine as a teacher, this is adding stress, isn't it? We're adding more and more on the teacher's. And you're saying there are some parents who are disengaging, but mm-hmm. uh, you know, there are reasons for that right and and uh, and if there's uh, poverty in the area or uh, other reasons why uh, children come to school hungry or needing behavioral counseling or or other things, this is a safety net right and as uh, society we decided the school is is a safety net how, how do you How do you balance those things
2: well I think that's that, that's really the, the the issue that we have to wrestle with. Um, With compulsory education, and I think what Senator Osmond is is sort of arguing is that when we have compulsory education, then it's forced on all. Uh, A good idea that may be good for one set of parents may not be good for another. And so some parents are being asked to do things that they would have done otherwise without the school um, intervening in any way. And other parents need that intervention. So the really tough task of public education is being able to do uh, this thing called differentiating services. And uh, the, we're just not set up that way. We have sort of a structural impediment, and that is that uh, we we are organized to function as a bureaucracy. I hate to put it that bluntly, but—and schools, unfortunately, have bureaucratic tendencies to overreach sometimes and— um, Parents then, when they feel that overreaching, begin to say, well, if they're going to do that, then I don't have to. And so it's a it's a vicious cycle, and it's one that, that deserves real discussion in the state, how we are going to provide for the needs of children who come to school extremely needy, uh, very much at risk, um, and how we can also um, not compel parents who are providing all those things already – to um, do that also in a, and in addition to what the schools wanting them to do mm. and so this whole idea of, of uh, differentiating services is going to be a big issue in the in the years ahead uh, I'll take for example one issue in the state of right now that's a big one is is what's the value of pre-k education and of course uh, the the research is coming in on that and uh, we have a What typically happens in education research, a mix of results. Um, But we do see that pre-K education for children at risk um, does give them a leg up in the first few years of school. It doesn't stick through all of the school years, but then I don't really think it's reasonable to expect that one year will carry you through high school. Um, but it does tend to give children a leg up in kindergarten, first, second grade, and then the, the effects start to dissipate as we move into third and fourth, and pretty soon you can't find those effects of uh, pre-K education for at-risk kids. But it does give them an early leg up. Now, does that mean that every child in this state needs compulsory pre-K education? And and I think therein is, uh, is the rub. Uh, the nub of the issue is uh, when we make... It compulsory. Everybody has to do it. Everybody has to pay for it. When in fact, some children come to school very well prepared, out of homes that are fairly um, affluent uh, and 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 have access to resources and and are very much engaged with their children. They don't need that access to pre-K education. And so, I think that's really the big issue that Senator Osmond's probably trying to surface here is. Um, if something's compulsory, is it compulsory for all? Does it need to be compulsory for all? And there are there there needs to be some discussion around this issue. We're uh, t- trying
0: to uh, chip in in our our way here at Utah Public Radio, Access Utah, discussing these issues. And uh, you're listening to a discussion on K through 12 public education. We're jumping off from Senator Osmond's proposal to end compulsory education. His concern is disengagement of parents. And I guess one size fits all. I know uh, his colleague, Senator Howard Stevenson, is talking about the a factory model of education uh, that he says is not working. We can uh, talk a bit about that as well. We're asking you what uh, what's been your experience with uh, your child's school? Maybe reaching back to your education. What do you think uh, should be changed? Uh, do you think we should end compulsory education? What about disengagement of parents? And uh, what's the proper role of parents? What's the proper role of teachers? The number is one eight hundred eight two six one four nine five, 826 1495 And you can join us by email at upraxess at com. And uh, Charles in Logan has joined us by email. Here's what he says. State Senator Osmond's proposal to end compulsory education, I guess, would solve certain problems and ignorant populace would be a big help in the advancement of our state energy plan, for example. Mm -hmm. And no more of this onerous robbing Peter to pay Paul taxation for such things as public education. No sirree, Bob. Let's get rid of that and replace it with a public ignorance tax. It's the perfect tax. We're not even aware of being taxed and it gets even better. The grandkids pay the brunt of it nobody knows anything nobody's responsible for anything. I tell you this new improved conservatism of today is a glorious thing to behold and then Charles uh, in case we hadn't picked it up he sa- he said with bitter sarcasm he says so <laughs> <laughs> uh, so Ch- Charles's uh, point uh, w- one of uh, Charles's point I was going to ask uh, you and I'll, I'll ask it here jumping off from Charles's uh, comment um, and you talked about this Professor Reitzel uh, some kids come very well prepared. From from uh, parents who are very engaged, they do. Some, for whatever reason, uh, come with a lot of problems. They do. It's, it's a one size fits all, but that's been the model, hasn't it? We 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 lump everybody together in the hopes that we can help those at risk kids, and also educate the ones who are very well prepared. Uh, but it takes you know takes the money to do that. Some parents want to take their kids and their money out of that go to go to the charter school go to the private school you know stay home do online homeschooling all all that um but if if a critical mass of parents do that then all we're left with is the at-risk at risk kids at
2: public school are we I don't know well that's that that is uh, one of the risks that we run as we uh, as we provide more options for parents um school funding's a big issue um uh we would we would most of us would like to believe that because public education is publicly funded that there's some equalization in all of that but uh, it's well known uh we've got many many studies nationally and even in the state of utah that demonstrate that one school district isn't funded as well as another and that even one school often isn't funded as well as another and so uh you know that 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 leads to inequities in the in the system Uh, right away. If your child's attending a school that, uh, you know, is seismically unsafe, you know, there's leaking pipes in the bathroom, the textbooks are 20 years old, the computers um, don't function, as opposed to a brand new beautiful school that has, uh, you know, all of the facilities for music and the arts and for PE and for performances and dance and auditoriums and and science labs stocked with the newest and best microscopes and uh, and uh, chemicals and things that you need to learn science and and uh, classrooms that have the large collections of children's books that they can uh, choose from and read. Think about the difference there. And that that very often can be seen in the very neighborhood in which children find themselves. Um, a month ago, when I was sitting on the Intergenerational Poverty Committee, we were meeting at Workforce Services. And I asked the group there, I said, just look out the windows. Um, there's a tattoo parlor, there's a pawn shop. Where's the bookshop? There isn't one in that neighborhood, and there probably won't be one because booksellers don't want to locate in areas like that because books aren't valued and uh, so we've got we've got really big structural issues um, economically speaking our middle class is evaporating and and as that does evaporate what teachers tend to find in their classrooms now instead of what we used to call a normal distribution you know where the, the the middle class was the large hump in the room and the affluent and the poor were the tails of the curve what we see now is and very very often is a bimodal distribution in classrooms where we have uh, a fairly small uh, narrow spiking uh, group of students who are well prepared and ready to go on and then this large group of students who have tremendous needs in education and the teacher then has to instead of being able to address uh, you know a range of students uh, that was was normally distributed with a large middle class before where there were a few students on the tails that needed help a lot and then pushing, you know, in a gifted type of uh, program. Now what we see is a very small group of students who need to be pushed and a very large group of students who need to be brought two and three years uh, forward from where they are because they entered school so far behind the uh, what was once expected and is still being expected uh, in, in to be internationally and even nationally competitive. And so I, I, I feel for teachers. Their world has changed immensely in the classroom. And, uh, but I don't believe that ending compulsory education is the solution to that problem. What is needed is for us to have discussions and deliberations and debates even about how we can restructure schooling in our country – so that it meets the needs of our population in our time and not just continue to push forward with a model of schooling that has been in place for centuries and was intended for a farming population 200 years ago that would take the summers off so that they could help with planting and taking care of the crops and harvesting the crops and then going to school in the winter when there was nothing to do that the family depended upon. I mean, it's very clear that that model is out of sync with with our world and the way we live our lives and out of sync um, with the rest of the world where students are attending school instead of 180 days a year. They're going 240 days a year, and um, teachers are not being expected to um, plan for this new and wide um, variety in classrooms that they have to address uh, with no planning time where in other countries they have more days to teach and they have less time in front of the children so they can plan more appropriately to meet the needs of students in their classrooms. And so we need a longer school year. There's no doubt about that. If we're going to continue to be uh, competitive internationally with uh, other schools and developed nations, um, we really need to have teachers be on the job uh, probably 11 months a year. Uh, with time built into their day to do the kind of instructional planning that will lead to passionate, informed, knowledgeable teaching, instead of just trying to get through the day with meet all of these sundry needs and having, you know, 15 minutes here, 10 minutes there to make, to plan their lessons. Uh, having been a school teacher, the the myth of three months off is a myth. Mm-hmm. Most classroom teachers who are passionate and care about what they're doing in the classroom don't take the summers off. They go to school. They take workshops. They take all kinds of learning experiences. They're planning their lessons all summer. They're taking their whole summer without, really, compensation to plan for these children's education they're going to meet the next year. And 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 then not having enough funding to even buy classroom supplies. My wife was a teacher. She, she has recently gone back for her master's degree, but she she was constantly... You know, needing to supplement the the supply budget of the classroom with her own money. Uh, I remember one time I told her, I said, Oh, you need to get these clean slates for the kids for choral response in the classroom. And she says, Do you know a donor? Hmm. And she looked right at me, and of course, the, the implication was, <laughs> mm-hmm. You can do this. Yeah, you were the donor. You're the yeah. donor. <laughs> But those are, those are some really, really big issues, and I, I, I think that Senator Osmond has brought this up, and I think it's a, it will provoke some very interesting conversation around, around our schools and what we need to do in the state of Utah to kind of bring our schools into the 21st century. Um, we – teachers, and, and, uh, <laughs> and I'm probably as bad as anybody, but um, teachers need to know more about how to integrate digital technologies into their teaching. They need to have those in their classroom. Uh, they can't do that if they don't have them in the first place, and that takes an enormous amount of money um, for children who come into classrooms to know to have access to uh, computers, tablets uh, of various makers, you know, iPads, iPods, um, because there's so much that can be delivered um, to children individually um, using these technologies that will meet needs, meet the diverse needs in our classrooms.
0: Here's another email. We'll put this in. We just have a couple minutes left. Uh, this is from Landon. I'd like to hear about the goal to end poverty. seems like nobody is talking about raising the minimum wage to a living wage. Utah seems to take more pride in attracting businesses that want cheaper labor costs to the state than they are, uh, than they care about education. It's my opinion that a living wage will do more to strengthen families and fix many problems in education at the same time. That's Landon. Interesting question. I, w- I wanted to follow up on that as well.
2: Well, it's it's obvious that uh, uh, people need to be paid a, a wage that will allow them uh, to uh, to live. Now, how we define what is a livable wage is the point of contention. Uh, if if you travel much in this world, and I've traveled practically to every continent in the world and at one time or another, um, our many of our poverty in, individuals we we say are in poverty uh, would be considered quite wealthy in other. Places in the world, so it, this is another issue. What do we mean by ending poverty, and what do we mean by a living wage, and what does that what does that give someone the opportunity to do? Um, I do think that we need to make sure that uh, there are ways for people to uh, have the dignity of being able to work and and put a roof over their heads, and food in front of their children, and clothes on their back, and provide for them um, adequate. Preventative uh, medical care and sometimes curative care, if necessary, um, all of those things need to be available. And as a society, we need to have a social conscience that is such that, that we will make sure that the, that the most vulnerable among us are cared for. On the other hand, um, there's always the, the the comment that Benjamin Franklin made years ago, and that is poverty ought to be uncomfortable enough that no one wants to stay in it. And so that's the tension that comes up around this issue. And uh, both sides have a piece of uh, of the pie, so to speak, a piece of the truth, and these ha- these things have to be talked through and deliberated and and carefully uh, administered. And bureaucracies don't tend to do that real well. So the closer you can move it to the families and to the people, the the better it'll be. We just have literally a
0: minute and a half. We want to fit in. Uh, I think it's is it Dan and Hiram. Jan. Oh, Jan, sorry. Uh, go ahead with your, with your comment quickly.
1: Um, I just wanted to comment on the nine-month school year. Um, as a mother, I see that my kids have a lot of stress when they're in school because of all the demands and activities. And I think that the summer vacation is important for children because they spend time with their families. You take vacations that you can't do during the school year because they can't miss school. You know, it's hard for older kids when they miss school. They get to work in the yard. They need the opportunity to have summer jobs. I just see that there are so many things that kids need to learn outside of the schoolroom. And if we have school all year round, then they're not going to learn those things.
2: Thanks, Jen. Uh, Thirty seconds, literally, uh, <laughs> Professor. <Wood>. <laughs> <laughs> well, she has a good point. Um, on the uh, Many of the schools around the world that go 11 months a year uh, tend to go a little bit shorter in the day they also do have a, a time a month usually uh that the that uh, schools are not in session so that families can get in the kinds of things like family vacations and family events and and so forth uh but but in our world today um 3 months is excessive and it's it's really uh it's really harming our children's ability to compete with the rest of the world and and maybe the rest of the world is wrong and jan's got it right um but um our children do have to live in the world that, they, that uh, has a competitive edge over our students. We'll have to leave it there. Thanks for listening.